Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. Welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. I am your host, Trent Werner. On today's Deal Deep Dive episode, we are joined by Scott Fowser. Scott is currently the Chief Revenue Officer for House Happy, which is a leading edge home service and technology platform. Scott joined House Happy after they acquired Gruntworks, which he founded in 2011. Scott has over 30 years of real estate experience and has stories about everything, including tenancy in common, land flipping, syndication, and now we're going to be talking about a 126-unit apartment conversion from a hotel. Scott's also adding 191 climate-controlled storage units on the same project. Now let's welcome Scott Fowser. Scott, thank you so much for joining the Westside Investors Network podcast today. Yeah, of course. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. Convince me to talk about myself for a few minutes. I'm all about it. <laughs> I love the real estate space. I don't get to do it as much as I'd like to, but I've been in it for so long. I love the game and I love being able to impart whatever knowledge I might have learned. If it helps somebody else, it's great. And I have a feeling that you're going to be able to share quite a bit of knowledge today. We're going to talk about a very unique deal, one that we've never talked about on this show before. Before we get into that specific deal, who is Scott Fowser? What are you currently doing in the real estate space? Everything I did, I started when I was in college, I started doing real estate deals. In fact, my first deal was while I was still in college down in, in Malibu and bought a piece of dirt and flipped it for a whole lot more in just a matter of short months, like four months. And then I you know, was a broker for a long time, put some partnerships together, moved to Oregon, got back into brokerage, started a company called RealNet. RealNet was a syndicator. Basically, we syndicated through tenant and common arrangements, which allowed people to come in and go out under 1031s into fractional interest, which was, in fact, we were one of five companies in the US that got together and helped the IRS write the revenue procedure around what was allowed under the 1031 rules. There were some private letter rulings, but there was never any true guidance you could hang your hat on. And so we helped them kind of frame the RevProc 2002-22, which opened up that industry to be a ridiculously large industry, which then cratered a few years later when the real estate market cratered. So it was a fun run. And then it evolved into like securities stuff and Delaware statutory trusts. I mean, all kinds of nonsense where it had machinated into. Unfortunately, I was out of it by then. So and so anyway, then, then that knowledge, that experience in... Uh, Real estate, real estate technology, managing, operating, dealing with contractors, that opened up the opportunity to create a company called Gruntworks, which was really helping people have a better experience when it came to owning and operating their homes and helping contractors do better in their business. So that then that company was acquired by a company called House Happy, which I work for now. 
as a chief revenue officer, and we've expanded nationally and ended up with a few hundred thousand homeowners under our platform and big partners like Fidelity and Black Knight and PenFed Credit Union and some of the big mortgage companies. So it's been a ride, but you know, it all adds on. Everything you learn builds on to where you end up adding value next. And that's one thing that I really find interesting about your experience is we have a lot of people on the show that you know have experience in brokerage or investing, syndication, that sort of thing. You really have experience in some of the very detailed niche facets of the real estate industry with the TIC rules and regulations and all that fun stuff, as well as the service business model behind some of these real estate services that you were able to, with Gruntworks, you also invest. You talked about you flipped the house or the land in college. That was a pretty interesting story in and of itself. But now you have been doing syndication for, gosh, over 20 years, right? 30. <laughs> 30 years. <laughs> I'm that old. Yeah, I'm that old. So being in the syndication space for over 30 years, I mean, you're still doing it, obviously. Yeah. What has attracted you to the syndication idea and the model and what has kept you in the syndication space for that long? It goes back to this acronym I was telling you about earlier that I developed or came up with a few years ago, and it's around deeds. And you seldom have all of the components of those letters. Those letters being either have the deal, you have the equity, you have the expertise, and you have the debt. And then it's how you structure those deeds is what makes the deal work or not. And especially as the syndicator, the more of those that you control, the better you can put your deal together for yourself. When you step back and you go, as a sponsor, how does this play out for me? Well, we'll get into my this other deal that I've got going on now. It's in most instances, people who you raise money from are going to want to see you have some skin in the game. That's not always the case. And when you start out, you probably don't have that much to invest yourself. What that means is your end of the promote is going to get smaller because the risk is higher for the investors. As you evolve and you check off more of those boxes, the structure of the deal becomes more favorable for you as the sponsor. That's what I've always liked about it. In fact, you even if you structure a deal, for example, like a 60-40 or a 70-30 split after a pref. So the investors get a pref of 10 or 12 or whatever the number is. And then you split those profits 60-40, 70-30 after that break even. And there's all kinds of machinations around waterfalls and splits and profitability and IRRs and all that stuff. But from a simplistic perspective, once you get everybody's money back, now you're participating at like 30, 40% of the cash flow and you got no money in the deal. And you've just basically put in other people's cash. And so it allows you to really, really leverage potentially your limited resources. That's why I love that. I love syndication. I love structuring deals. And then it's just finding the opportunities where you're always creating value. Yeah. And one follow-up question to that is, what do you think are the most valuable or is the most valuable letter of the acronym when someone is starting off? The deal. Yeah. It's the deal. The deal is the most important of anything because the deal will find you back. It will find you debt. The deal is everything. But if you don't know what to do with it, that doesn't help. But yeah. if you don't know what to do with it, you probably didn't recognize it in the first place. Educating yourself, making sure you know what a good opportunity is, but finding it and having resources to find it, whether it's your own efforts or um, people bringing them to you, that's really the biggest opportunity because you always make your money on the buy. Yep. And that's, I mean, since I got started in the real estate world, my mentors have told me, if you find a good deal, get it in contract and we'll figure out how to pay for it later because that good deal is going to attract everything else. So Scott, this deal that we're going to talk about today, it is a very, very complex, interesting, 
I don't want to say a crazy deal, but it's one that I've never heard of before. Can you walk us through the acquisition process for what we're going to talk about today? Sure. And again, you know, we also talked about this idea of longevity matters in this business. It's harder when you first get started, but the longer you're in it, the more opportunities come across your desk. From my real net days, I knew a guy who was working for one of my competitors and we hadn't connected in years. And he reached out to me just checking in and he was telling me about this asset that he had, actually a couple, he had several assets that he was trying to get rid of for a client of his who was basically a portfolio buyer. And so they'd buy packages of loans and they needed to get these deals done by end of year. New Mexico, there's not much in New Mexico. Just so happens I have a little bit inside baseball that my cousin lives in one of the towns that one of these assets was in for 30 years. I go, what's the opportunity here? Because the fundamentals behind the deal, meaning the baseline cost was stupid. I think what they were asking was for two assets that were each 115,000 square feet was 4 million. Fundamentally at a cost per pound basis, it was cheap. And I didn't know how bad the conditions were or anything in the buildings or anything, but it was like, you know, finally you check some boxes. That's pretty cheap. You certainly couldn't replace it for that. So then I started poking around and I found, I found out that there's an opportunity for, there's no housing available in either of these markets. The economics of the area don't justify new construction because you can't build for a number that the local community can afford. It's a vicious cycle on housing. There was a really bad abusive situation in the housing market down there where people were literally buying like Home Depot sheds and putting a wire into them from an extension cord and renting them out. Rough, right? Yeah. I started digging into it. I was like, I could mess up pretty bad and still do well with this if you look at the math on underwriting the deal and what this looked like as apartments. Because I've known some people here in the Northwest who've been doing hotel to apartment conversions for quite a while. And assuming you buy it right, the physical improvements of the building don't become prohibitive. SDCs, you can't do it in Portland. You can't. It's just too expensive to. But in more favorable markets where people actually want to truly make a difference in housing, they make the hurdles be much less. I looked into it and it's like, this deal makes sense. And so I ended up buying two of them from a lender under a 1031 exchange that we'd sold one of our real net properties in Colorado and ran some of the money through both of these deals. Ended up flipping the one building that was down the road about an hour, flipped that about 14 months later after we put a little bit of money into it, pretty decent profit, and then put that money back into this project. So it just kind of fell in my lap. And if you look at the deal on the surface, you'd be like, this doesn't make any sense. But if you kind of pull back the layers a little bit and you go, what's the real opportunity here? There was one and a really meaningful one because, you know, in my gosh, they're a new construction. You're probably 200 bucks a foot. We'll be all in after renovating everything, new electrical, new plumbing, new everything, HVAC for probably 75, 80 bucks a foot. You know, it's real math. We'll end up with 126 apartments and 191 climate-controlled self-storage units, which is the other opportunity that was there because their community had about six facilities. They were all full for storage, none of them climate-controlled. And so if you had anything of value that you didn't want to freeze or bake, you had nowhere for it to go. So what I learned is digging around down there is people were literally putting their items in pawn so they had somewhere to store them safely at 4% per month. Yeah. Crazy. Anyway, that was the opportunity there. And it took a lot of looking. But again, I had some inside baseball there because I knew some people locally who had, they knew what was going on. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. 
Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. To be honest with you, unless you have the experience and you've seen what you've seen in your career, I would say most people would see this deal and just kick it to the curb because of, like you said, on the surface, yeah, it's cheap, but it doesn't look the best when you're first looking at it as first impression, I guess I would say. And well, so the you- lenders looked at it the same way. The lenders really had a hard time with how does this thing make sense? In the, the aha moment, interestingly, the aha moment was our loan officer who had, they have a local branch there for this one bank. Our loan officer was in a doctor's appointment and she was sitting in the room and she basically asked all the people in the room where they were from, all the doctors and nurses, and none of them were from the area. She goes, well, what's your housing situation? They all complained. Every single one of them complained about how hard it was to find housing there and that they were likely going to leave the situation and go out of the area unless they found better housing. That was the opportunity because that was the pitch was this isn't for the subsidized, the people who live in the area that basically 99.9% of the housing is all subsidized. It's for the people coming in who make too much to qualify for that. It was a really niche opportunity. So it's like, there's always opportunities. You just have to find where it is. Currently, the building, you said it's going to be 126 apartments when it's all said and done. And currently, it's a hotel? Yeah. That in itself is, you have to go through the conversions and the zoning and everything like that. How long does that process take? And what does that kind of look like for your plan? So it's going to be in, you know, depending on jurisdiction, it could be a few months, it could be a couple of years. It's just, it really depends on where you are. In our instance, because it was a small town and it was the first thing that I asked is like, because at the time it was a C2 zone, which didn't allow long-term housing, which is under 30 days or over 30 days. We had to go through a zone change or a conditional use permit. It wasn't even allowed as a conditional use when I first started, but they're basically very much in favor of making that change. They made the change, approved the conditional use permit. That only took probably three, four months, which in Portland, it would be two years. That's why I I smile. Yeah. And then interestingly, other than just the lack of resources that exist in that market, the approval process is pretty quick. I mean, you're going to get a big kick out of this one. The city has seven business days to review your plans once you submit them. Wow. Yeah. So basically two weeks, you're approved, assuming all your ducks are in order. Yeah. Again, Portland is 10 times, 20 times that length for something like this. Well, there's other things. I mean, like, for example, the state, not the city, oversees your MEP, your mechanical, your electrical, and your plumbing. You have to submit it to the state to review those drawings. And then once those drawings are approved, then you can incorporate them into your plan set that you submit to the city. But then they look at all of those. And if something's wrong, you have to go back through all those channels. But it's much better than most places. So from start to finish to get everything ready for construction was what, six months? Well, it should have been. We had some architectural problems. We had an architect that messed everything up and delayed everything for a very long time. So we should have been under construction 
probably within six months, we didn't get under construction for over a year. And then the the build will be about a year. Okay. And then what is a project like this cost? I know you said it was fairly affordable to purchase when you're saying you're converting 126 or making 126 apartments and then adding 191 storage facility units. That's got to be a good chunk of change to make all that happen, right? Yeah. So we'll be into that for about eight and a half million all in with land and entitlements and soft costs, hard costs, all that. Carry interest reserves, all that. Yeah. And what's the projected hold time for this? There's so much equity being created in the deal. The low end estimate is that it's worth 13 million when it's done. So it'll be near eight and a half and it'll be worth 13. We should be able to refinance out. I think our LTV on that to refinance all the senior debt is like 45%. If you look at our anticipated value, meaning using our rents of what we believe we'll get versus what the appraiser put in there as local market rents, it's more like 37%. We'll pull out, pay off all the debt, get everybody's money back, pull some cash out, and then just hold it and cash flow it for however long we want to. Yeah. Also in an opportunity zone. So we did buy it as an opportunity and put an opportunity zone business in place that created another option. Right. And we talked a little bit about, you already mentioned the long-term housing, how you had to go through all the zoning. Is there any, because I mean, there's plenty of medical professionals that are traveling in and obviously need a place to stay. Is there any thought or ideas of having some of those units be medium-term, short-term housing? From a financing perspective on your takeout, you want to have those be all as long-term as you possibly can. If you want to do any HUD financing or any of the stuff that makes it easier, you want to have 12-month leases as you can. I think what will maybe end up happening is we'll have some of the hospitals, some of the employers, they'll take those units on long-term leases, and then they'll manage the turnover. Got so it. that's, okay. frankly, we may have some other entity locally that releases a number of units and just short-terms them. Yeah. Okay. Just to that's, make sure that we're always full. Yeah. And for the storage facility aspect of this investment, is everything happening in one phase or are you going apartments, then storage? How does that all align with the plan? We're actually going storage first because it's the easiest to get implemented and open. The one thing that we did need to do that is going to be massively expensive. Well, actually, it wasn't the biggest expense. The biggest expense was electrical because that all those individual rooms have to have their own breakers and have to have their own home runs. And what we thought was going to be a couple hundred thousand dollars turned out to be almost a million dollars in electrical, which blow your budget in a heartbeat. But the storage units are easy. It's all open. We demoed what was the ballroom, the kitchen, the restaurant, and the lounge made about 16,000 feet of open space. And then we're having the units built off site and brought in and link and log together. Those go together pretty quick. And plus you're not doing finish on everything because your walls become backsides of your storage units and the interior walls are just coming from somewhere else. So you do have to have electrical fire suppression, HVAC, there's not really any plumbing, but and security. Those are the things that you need to have to open that space. That'll be our first phase. And then our second phase will be what is the north wing of the building is about 54 units. And then that's phase one, apartments are phase two. And then the last phase is another 72 units along the west and the south end. When it comes to the management of not the project, but the actual units when they're all completed, Is that something that you guys do in-house for the storage and the... No. When you're looking at, when you're doing stuff, certainly out of your local market, you want to have somebody's local 
who knows the local laws, who deals with the local stuff all the time. And so we've got a property management company that'll be taking care of all of that for us. Gotcha. And then when you guys are stabilized, I mean, I know you already talked about getting fresh debt on it and doing a cash out refi, but what are your target kind of average annual returns, IRRs, that kind of thing? Obviously, once you get your money out, those things all go out the window. If we kept it and didn't refi, basically everybody's getting 3x their money back. You said it's going to take, did I hear you right, two years to kind of get all the construction going or completed, I guess? Yeah. Do it to the demo. Yeah. Start your projects. I mean, the actual re-improvements, the putting it all back together will take about a year. Okay. Very nice. Did I miss anything on this deal? I mean, there's so many different moving parts on it that I almost don't even know what we've hit and what we haven't at this point. You know, the acquisition was interesting. Solving somebody's problem is always a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, and for what it's worth, <laughs> they had two buildings that I had put under contract and I was actually going to walk from the second one. It didn't have as clear a path. It seemed like it would be a lot longer downtime. But it fundamentally, again, I bought that one for six bucks a foot, right? It was just crazy, crazy. But I was like, I kind of have to buy it because I actually, I went back to them and said, I don't want it anymore. And they're like, well, what would you take it for? I'm like, well, and then I gave them a number and they gave me another number. And I was like, well, I kind of have to buy it at that number. <laughs> it turned out to be not as good of a home run as this one will be, but we didn't have to do a lot to it to generate a nice gain. I know you mentioned that being a smaller market, especially in New Mexico. So, and I know you had inside scoop on on the area itself, but what kind of research do you guys look at when it comes to the market itself? I know you said that the housing was pretty limited if if anything was available. What about the demographics and that kind of research that goes into this? If I was just to look at the demographics and sort of income job growth, population growth, that kind of stuff, I would have never bought this deal. On the surface, it made zero sense. High crime, low education, low employment, but the fundamental behind it was a massive need for housing and a very niche need for employee housing. That was the solution. So again, it's like you couldn't put it into a box that if you are certainly an institution, you're going to go, no, I mean, it didn't check any box. But sometimes that's where you make the gems. I mean, I met a guy a couple of years ago, kind of had a very similar situation where nobody wanted this deal. In fact, his partners all like bailed on him. He got them out for less than they had into it. And then he turned it around and made like $12 million on the deal. Not bad. It's just because he believed in it. He saw the opportunity and they didn't because they were fearful. Yeah. I've got a couple of partners in this deal that because it's taken longer, they live in Southern California where everything's sunny and pretty and expensive. They look at the heartburn that this deal has caused. They're like, if you can get us out of this deal, take us out. I'm like, if I had an extra few hundred, 800,000 bucks laying around, I'd take them out in a heartbeat. I guess that's a kind of a follow-up question that I have is obviously you bought it right. There's no question about that. At what point and everything's going to go swimmingly and smooth and you're going to get through all the hurdles that pop up and everything like that. But at what point do you have to pause if there is any points that you'd have to pause like and just maybe stick with the get the storage up and running and then go back to the apartments i know ideally everything is at once but like you said the area may not be as desirable as some other areas so do you have any concerns when it comes to the phases and the schedule and the timeline other than just contractors being slow always if not daily it's a weekly 
reevaluation. In fact, you look at it, even in the middle of it, and you go, are we still on path? Is this based on these changes in costs? Are we better off finding somebody who wants to take this over the finish line, exiting the deal and either minimizing our gain or minimizing our losses or however the numbers balance out? Because now we're going to go deeper. So we're going to go, we're into it for X and now it's going to be X times three by the time we're done. Does that still make sense? So it's a constant evaluation of what the market is, where you are in the deal. And frankly, you might be at a point in the deal where you can't do anything. Maybe there's nobody who wants to come in and step in. You find that with contractors, right? It's like you lose a contractor and another contractor says, well, I don't want to inherit their mess. It's a constant evaluation. There's a lot of easier deals to do that have a lot less moving parts. But the more moving parts, the more you have to constantly evaluate. Yeah. I guess the more reward for the people that are involved in this when it comes to a deal with this much hair on it. (laughs) So there's a reason that there's a million house flippers out there. It's not that hard. The point of entry is slow. The amount of capital is generally low. There's a lot more of them. When you look at scarcity, you just have to find the needle in the haystack. And it's about looking at a lot of stuff. Yeah. Did I miss anything on this deal today? I don't think so. We kind of covered it. Yeah. We talked about the acquisition. We talked about the game plan during the hold, the refi, and there's no plan on the dispo right now. So... Yeah, I think we, we might. kind of covered it though. You know, we might once we stabilize and then you just have to like, what am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Now you've got gain and as a group, are we going to exchange? Or are we going to, at some point during this process, separate into a tenant and common structure where we can individually 1031 out of it? That's always a little bit risky. You have to make sure you're doing everything right on the timing cycle without blowing up your debt. If you drop out into a different ownership structure in the middle of loan, We've broken covenants. And so now your debts do. There's a lot of stuff you need to be careful of when you know, you're evaluating those things. Yeah, absolutely. Scott, is there any place that people can learn more about you or connect with you? LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn, Scott Fowler. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm always open. I have a ridiculous number of LinkedIn connections because I always think that the more people you know, the more opportunities you get exposed to. I still will be doing deals periodically. I don't do very many of them. I've got a day job, but the ones that I am involved in, I pay close attention to. Well, and they probably take up a decent amount of your time given this deal as one example. Well, the good news is, again, it's just like every other thing that you do and in your business, it's like you have to surround yourself with good people. And the people I brought in to do this project do it largely without me. I have guidance and I have involvement, but I can't afford to make it be my full-time gig. You give up profit, you give up pieces, you get people who have a vested interest in seeing it succeed, then You get people who care about it as much as you do. Absolutely. Well, Scott, thank you so much for sharing this story with us and this deal. And I'll definitely make sure people can find you on your LinkedIn. We'll link that down below. And uh, again, appreciate you for your time. Yeah, of course. It's great to see you. Thanks, Scott. You bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.